Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Brent Montgomery, the CEO of Wheelhouse Group, a family office where he creates entertainment content and a venture capital fund that invests in businesses to amplify brands around talent. Brent is a media producer and operator whose first hit was Pawn Stars at his first production company, Left Field Pictures. He later oversaw a host of reality television hits, including HGTV's Fixer Upper, Netflix's Queer Eye, A&E's Duck Dynasty, and Bravo's The Real Housewives of New Jersey while running ITV America after he sold Left Field to ITV. 
Our conversation covers Brent's childhood entrepreneurial efforts, creation of Pawn Stars, vertically integrating and expanding Left Field's business, and its sale to ITV. We turn to the flywheel behind Wheelhouse, monetizing talent and intellectual property across production, marketing, merchandising, and events. It's partnering with leading investors and a few investment examples along the way. Please enjoy my conversation with Brent Montgomery. Brent, great to see you. Great to see you, Ted. I'd love to go back to your first entrepreneurial instincts way back when. They came out somewhat organically without me knowing at the time. I didn't have a lot of money and I wanted a lot of stuff and I found out that that required money. So (laughs) I started buying stuff at our version of Walmart. I figured out I could sell it for more at school, buy it wholesale, sell it retail. I wouldn't say it was a thriving business, but that led to then a lawn mowing business and a baseball card business things that were more above board, although the IRS may still be owed some on either of those businesses. (laughs) What was the first thing you sold and flipped to your classmates? Fireballs. I had no competitors. I would buy them, I think, for a nickel. I could sell them up to a quarter, maybe even more if somebody felt like it was their time to have one. That was the first one. I was able to use that revenue and reinsert it with Big League Chew, I think was the next one. So what'd you do with that interest coming out of school? I went to college, started studying business, went through 209 and 210 accounting, wanted to put a knife through my eyes. I did sales some through college. I can still tell you quite a bit about Cutco knives. If you've (laughs) ever done direct sales, knives to housewives in the Cutco world, you get told no a lot more than you get told yes. And that was good training for television where you get told no a lot more than you get told yes. Then I serendipitously ended up working for a local radio station, and then graduated to television. And I really love storytelling. So coming out of college with a journalism degree meant I was always curious. And I think curiosity is critical to anybody who wants to invest. Once I figured out that there was an actual business where you could tell creative stories and make some money doing it and have your own business, I thought, wow, this is for me. That manifested itself first into shooting weddings and bat mitzvahs, which wasn't what I set out to do, and then renting (laughs) out my equipment to other people. But then finally, I started making television shows in my 20s for other people, which then eventually led to me starting my own business and being able to sell my own TV show ideas. So what was the path from that interest to what led to Pawn Stars, that first big one? It doesn't sound real, but I was on a bachelor party. And when you deal in unscripted reality TV, you're always looking around you for ideas. I was smart enough to hire what we call a production assistant, but we weren't producing anything. We were on a bachelor party. I figured we would need somebody to get us around and get us Advil in the morning. We literally (laughs) drove by a pawn shop and that made my curious mind go, has anything ever been done here? We did what we do, which is call the networks and ask, have you been pitched this? What do you think? What would you like? And we got a lot of the same feedback, probably not for us, a little too dark, a little too dingy. We didn't take that as a don't go do it. We took those notes and tried to present something that highlighted the top 5% of what goes through those guys' pawn shop, which happens to be high-end art, airplanes, Super Bowl rings, and all kinds of cool stuff. We really pitched it as a show that told the stories around the stuff. It just happened to be that the guys were hysterical characters as well. Pawn Stars was one that on paper made no sense. 
the American or even the international understanding of pawn shops where, where criminals would go to hawk their stuff, but that's very well protected usually from happening. What we're best at, our core skill set of unscripted TV, it's finding big characters. And in unscripted television, when you cast a character, they're not only the author, because whatever comes out of their mouth is the story, but they're also the on-camera actor, the on-camera talent. It's the most important thing is who you cast to be in these shows. So when we found the Harrisons, and Rick specifically, we found folks that were authentic to a business. There was a lot of built-in family, I'll call it everything from love, but mostly animosity to a lot of ribbing that just made for a good, what we would call an series, an occupational series. And it took off in ways that we could have never imagined. But it was because these guys actually knew a ton of history around stuff where generally you go into a pawn shop and it's what can somebody measure? Is it silver, gold? Is it electronics that you can turn on and off? You can hire somebody for minimum wage to do that stuff and protect with cameras and surveillance. But if you want to trade in Picassos, you're not going to find too many Rick Harrisons. So we were very fortunate to find those guys. If you remember what was happening at the end of 08, the top of 09, it was the beginning of hard times and had a lot of people thinking about what would I do if all my money went away in the bank? Do I have stuff in my attic, my closet that I could go and maybe there's a gym upstairs? Life is about timing, investing is about timing, and certainly getting stuff right on television is about timing. And we got very fortunate the History Channel bought that show when they did. How did you get to unscripted reality TV? Not by design. Most people who are my age, I'm sure I present mid-20s, but uh, late (laughs) 40s, wanted to get into dramas, comedies, scripted television. And then around 2000, there was the first big boon of unscripted. Often unscripted is a great complimentary purchase for networks or streamers against the much more expensive scripted television. When there are writer strikes or when Netflix or Discovery or HBO or whoever wants to spend millions and millions on scripted, These unscripted shows, which often can rate just as high or higher, are much more affordable and can be turned much quicker. So in a potential strike or an actual strike of writers or actors, et cetera, we can turn these shows in under six months and sometimes even faster. That market was really created in the early 2000s. It first mostly drew female viewers. So most people like me worked on shows that were meant to be watched by women, shows like Wife Swap and What Not to Wear and The Bachelor. Seven, eight years later, you started to have shows that guys liked as well. Deadliest Catch, Ice Road Truckers, Pawn Stars, American Pickers, Naked and Afraid, Survival Shows, and other stuff. So now there's a real market. And then, of course, you have stuff that crosses both demographics and goes young, old, on broadcast as well as streaming. Once you had that success at Pawn Stars much higher than you had thought, how did you start thinking about the business around it? A lot of people don't want to take risk in any business. I was probably too dumb or didn't have enough dependencies at that time to think that way. We took everything we were making for really the entirety of my first business, always put it back in. One Hit Wonder was the first thing that made me think, how do I want to take this opportunity with Pawn Stars, which had risen to number one on TV at that time against scripted, unscripted, everything, which was unimaginable, still unimaginable. You're in the incoming business then. You've got a hit. 
you're not going to get two or three years to have another one. You've got to strike while the iron's hot. So we immediately pumped a ton of money back into developing our own ideas, which means you're footing the entire bill. And then you hopefully go out and sell it. We were very fortunate to take out our next slate and sell the vast bulk of it. And then all of a sudden we had a real business. So as you develop that, how did you start to think about the business model that you were building? We are considered a work for hire on a lot of those shows. What that means is we're kind of attached to the shows, but we're not necessarily sharing in a lot of the back-end participation. And that's proliferated across scripted now as well with Netflix. And all these streamers are global, which means for stuff we invest in that we might put on television, it used to be that Pawn Stars had to go sell in 200 territories. It could take years to sell the show internationally. Now with Netflix or Discovery Plus, you turn on that light switch and it's everywhere in the world overnight. We really started to think early and often about how do we use this content for more than just being content, but also investing in the people and the businesses and the brands behind it. We vertically integrated everything we could. So everything got made in-house, all the sound recording, the mixing, the color, everything that you would typically do out of house. We started building the infrastructure and we had the volume. This could be for any business. You don't want to build a factory unless the orders are there. We now had an incredible amount of volume, so we were able to go and build an incredible infrastructure to support that and even outsource elements of it to our friends or what some people would call our competitors. That's what we did differently to some degree than all of our competitors at the time. We took a lot more risk. We pumped a lot more money into the infrastructure, but that could have obviously gone the other way. Had we not kept that pipeline going, we'd have an empty warehouse. So over the next couple of years until you sold the business, what did it grow to look like right before the sale? I did something which I don't think many of my friends running similar businesses did, which was I hired a bunch of people with business degrees. I'm on a good day, a street savvy entrepreneur, but I started surrounding myself with guys that went to business schools and put me through SWOT analysis, which I came in in armor because I didn't think it was going to be that kind of SWOT. I started learning about EBITDA and arbitrage and how beautiful those two things could be together and got convinced that we should or could do the first debt finance deal in our space. We don't own the intellectual property, so it was really going off our contracts and our relationships that Barclays led a club deal for us to go do M&A in our own field and gobble up other producers who we rated very highly. So we had a group of companies. From 2012 to 2014, we were able to take a business that was one outfit and build it up to four. We brought in a merchant bank who, like Christmas, came out and told us what the company was making and would make if we didn't pump every single penny back into it and what they thought we could sell it for, which I thought was not going to happen. But it turns out motivated bankers can deliver every other time. (laughs) So you sold the business to ITV. What was those next couple of years like in that phase of your career? Many companies will go to market and talk to 15 buyers. We were in a spot where we didn't think we had to sell, which of course is a nice spot to be in. I really admired the guy running the American operation, Paul Buccieri, who now runs the A&E Networks. And then the CEO of the global company is probably the most impressive CEO I've ever spent time with. His name's Adam Crozier, and he'd done four big turnarounds in the UK. Saatchi and Saatchi, the Football Association, so think our version of the NFL. The Royal Mail, so our version of the US Mail, which as everybody knows is not an easy business. And then ITV. ITV was in the absolute shitter when he came in and turned it around. And he really, in my time with him, talked about what he saw in our business and what he saw in our team and what he thought the future could be for us beyond just a typical earnout. 
those things came together and really provided us the next opportunity, which happened faster than we thought. My boss, Paul, went over to run A&E, and that created an opportunity for me to take over the American operation, which, in addition to my four companies, had six other companies. What I was inheriting was Fixer Upper, Cake Boss, Duck Dynasty, Hell's Kitchen. We would launch Queer Eye for Netflix right after I got there. But it was also an interesting time in the business. A lot was happening in media. I'd never had cost cutting, never done that at my previous company. And we had to go through and integrate two very different cultural companies. And I like to think that we're a baby version of the Ari Emanuel endeavor going into WMA at the time, William Morris, and really the endeavor culture bled through that hustle, that entrepreneurialism. And that's the lasting thing, hopefully, that we put on ITV. When it came time for you to step aside, how have you thought about this as a business? We were in a nice, cushy position. My chief strategy officer, who's been the co-architect of everything I've done in the last 10 years, Ed Simpson, we could have stayed where we were. I go back to that curiosity and opportunity. When you're working for a publicly traded company, you can't do side bets that are outside of what you've told your investors they're investing in. We saw the opportunity to create a version of Disneyland for real people. Nobody, I think, has done a better job than Walt Disney of creating a flywheel for monetizing intellectual property, whether it be a brand, a film, or something that might start as music, or even some of their rides have turned into films. Nobody's better in our estimation than Disney, but nobody's really thought of all the different ways they could do that in-house at a modern-day studio. That's a big idea. And we're still a hell of a long way from being there. But that was the kernel of what we wanted to do. And we saw Pawn Stars, for instance, there were 75 people a day going through the shop. We put the show on. There were 5,000 people in dead August lined up around the building waiting as we shot inside to meet our funny lunatics. And their business just exploded. Fixer Upper, maybe the best example of what Magnolia and the Gaines family was able to do to transform their business, and frankly, that town of Waco, Texas. So we really saw this opportunity to invest in businesses and brands of people. And we also saw for what was happening in tech and consumer, anything that was consumer facing, celebrity was really starting to mean more and more. The world for investing and starting businesses never been more crowded, which is great. Obviously, there's a lot of competition out there and the barrier for entry has never been lower. But to be able to go from a great idea to making sure everybody knows about it, what is a company's ability to get their message out? So for us, the idea of starting Wheelhouse was to be a bridge between startups or even growth companies and marketing and content capabilities. The best recent example I can think of, which is not our show, is Drive to Survive on Netflix. F1 has been around for a long time in the U.S., much like soccer, much like Premier League. But if you think about what's driven the crazy numbers happening right now in F1 and Premier League over here, it's the TV show on Netflix and the video games. This is storytelling. This is content. This is not advertising. This is reaching an audience, much like Disney has historically. And so we thought if we can partner up with best-in-class investors, whether it's venture or private equity, we can co-invest and they won't look at us as competitive. We're not trying to lead. So we've just piggybacked with these folks on coming into great opportunities and making sure that the brands they're investing in get touched and seen and shown on Netflix or Hulu or in the celebrities' hands that we touch. I'd love to dive in on how the flywheel works at Wheelhouse. As you're making an investment, it's centered around content. 
what type of content are you trying to invest in? If you've ever seen the Disney flywheel, it's pretty easy. You Google 1957 Walt Disney business model. I always joke that he's Walt Disney, so he drew his business plan instead of writing 500 pages. It doesn't matter where the intellectual property starts. My daughters met Frozen through the music first. My son met Star Wars through the theme park first. But then they want the toothbrushes, the nightgowns, the Halloween costumes. They want to listen to the music, go to the movie theater, and then watch Disney+. Plus. I should mention that my more famous partner is Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy really leveled us up with talent and relationships that is sort of second to none. We joke that he's the mayor of Hollywood because once a year, the biggest stars in the world are going through his couch to promote whatever is the most important thing for them at that time. Whether it's us as unscripted producers or Jimmy, we're always seeing trends by design early to try to cast this as a pawn shop as the next big wave. Chefs, nobody was watching or talking about chefs as celebrities before unscripted TV. Certainly the same about real estate brokers. We just announced two shows for Netflix in Miami and LA. One, it's called The Agency, a real estate firm where the husband is one of the guys on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. And then in Miami, there's a husband-wife design firm. These folks are the tip of culture of real estate trends. We'll make the TV show with them. But for us, it's about with a guy like Mauricio, who owns the agency, what can we talk about when we see the next big investment opportunity in real estate and lifestyle? The couple in Miami are both interior decorators, same thing. We can reverse engineer. For example, one of the PR companies we've invested in sees ideas for companies before they've actually gone from paper. So if we think it's a cool TV concept, we can start developing that from the beginning with the company. We could highlight on an HGTV the actual business from startup. We invested in a company called Golden Auctions, really legitimate investors, Steve Cohen, Peter Chernin, the Chernin Group have all invested in. Our little way for us to elbow into the cap table was by saying, hey, we'll take out a TV concept on the business. If you've never heard of Golden Auctions, he is the goat of sports collectibles. And now that extends well into other areas. You take my skill set of telling the stories of stuff. But then we also want somebody that brings in his own audience. So we bring Peyton Manning in to not only executive produce, but appear in the show. That all of a sudden could lead to us seeing investment opportunities with Peyton's business partners. So we bring it all together through what we like to refer to going back to the Disney model is our version of Disneyland, which are our physical wheelhouses, which are in LA, New York, Fairfield, Connecticut. You could see the founders of the biggest tech companies in the world, the biggest athletes in the world, the hottest entertainers, but also the people that don't necessarily show up to those parties, the investors, the capital. And the founders put all those people in the same room and you don't tell them what to do, but you just present the ingredients. They're smart enough to figure it out. And many times they're nice enough to include us in what's next. I'm curious about the pieces of this puzzle. Why don't you walk me through the different aspects of everything you're involved with with Wheelhouse? When I started to get into finance and investing, it all looked the same. And certainly when I moved up to Connecticut, there were a lot more vests than I was used to seeing Brooklyn and Manhattan. <laughs> but it's all so different from hedge funds to venture to public versus private, et cetera, et cetera. It's very similar on the entertainment side. Now the biggest names in the world for young people are on TikTok. They're on Snap. That's going to become the spot and is the spot where we go casting for that age group. 
So that's one division of what we do. We try to be the bridge between the young stars of tomorrow and today, frankly, on these digital platforms and make sure that they make it onto the Netflix, Hulu's discoveries. Then you get into unscripted versus scripted. Those are different genres. We're fortunate to have a company that does film, that does scripted television. Kimmel touches all of it. We do scripted with Jimmy and unscripted. And then we just launched a new venture with the woman who was running Food Network and HGTV. That's meant to be very lifestyle focused. Very few people have run both of those networks that have done quite well through cable's woes of the last decade. Those two have held strong. Her name's Courtney White. Again, here's another trend spotter. She came here not just to make TV shows, but to really plug into everything else we're doing. We have another company called Portal A that really focuses on digital stars and YouTube channels. They do Steph Curry's YouTube channel. There's another way maybe to get Steph and the family to do other stuff. And then we have a marketing team that bridges the gap between our investing arm and our content arm because often we haven't traditionally as producers had marketing in-house. Now we have a company that acts as an agency of record for both publicly traded companies and then also our portfolio companies that we invest in. And for our founders, who we like to think of as the most special people in our wheelhouse, Wheel of Fortune, they get to work with a marketing team, a PR team, a production team that's also an investor and not a vendor. So we'll always go that extra mile because we have more at stake with them. Those are a lot of the type of people for us, these founders who we call it founder flow because they're out there every day, whether it's this guy, Nate Checkets, who founded Roan Men's Activewear. He's referred four or five things that would have been 10x had we invested in all of them. Thankfully, we did a couple of them. It's getting all these like-minded people who want to collaborate, which we think in a global world is even more valuable. And if they don't want to collaborate or that they have sharp elbows, then they're not really going to be invited back to our events and our little family. What does your team across these business units look like? If there's one thing I've tried to do, and it hasn't been hard, it's always hire smarter people. And it hasn't been hard because my IQ is not that high. But this has allowed us to, to hire best in class people. Our marketing head, Dan Sanborn, came out of Diageo, which is the number one spirits brand in the world. They've been innovative in ways that I've just found so exciting. He was charged with building what's called culture and partnerships inside Diageo. And what that meant back when spirits were not allowed to have 30-second commercials, they had to show up in culture in cool ways. He had to get into writer's rooms. He did work with Silicon Valley, the TV show, Game of Thrones, an enormous deal. Or he'd partner up with the most entrepreneurial celebrities, guys like Diddy, who put real skin in the game with Ciroc and has built that to a place that most talent would have never done the work. And Dan had brought Kimmel into Diageo and had Jimmy be a bit of a traffic cop to the right people to lean in for Diageo. It fostered a relationship inside that building that when he said, hey, I want to leave to go do something more entrepreneurial, but I want to bring the family with me. We've done the same thing with ITV. It's always trying to think about how are these businesses where we have so much deep-rooted success and shorthand with, and how do we bring them in? So for us, for Diageo, they came in as our biggest and first brand partner, and they show up in great ways at all of our events, and there's real synergies there. Dan's a tried-and-true marketer, and I'm not. Dan may show me who he's going to hire, and I may meet him before they start, but he's running that business. 
Then we have an entertainment business where I've hired folks who I've worked with over the years or wanted to work with, who I think are best in class, who all have different skill sets. One tried and true producer, one has represented talent forever and can help bring big talent into the family. And then another one who's the best one-liner title initial creator. He's able to kick it off to all of a much larger team to actually take that kernel of an idea and put it onto television. And then on the investing side, It's a mix of people who know our world and know how to bridge the world of entertainment, but have pretty good business and investing chops. And then people who come from Lindsey Goldberg and real private equity shops. So it's a nice blend of both. We're very fortunate to follow El Catterton or a churning group or Alexis Ohanian into these other deals. We rely on them quite heavily for supply side and other stuff that we're not best in class at. And they look at us to go tell the story every which way you can. So as this flywheel brings talent and trends into you on the investment side, what's your sweet spot in terms of the stage or type of company you like investing in? We'll write checks off the balance sheet for early stage stuff to get relationships with the founders, to learn more about spaces, because we can offer the founders access to CNBC host or Bloomberg's top bureau chiefs or stuff like that. We'll always get a little bit more attention and love from founders than people just investing straight capital. At that stage, it's about forming a relationship and seeing if they'll show up. We try to protect both sides of our introductions. So if you're somebody like Alex Rodriguez, who we've been fortunate to do stuff with, who I know you've had on your shows, Alex is a pretty savvy business guy who, like me, isn't formally trained, but did as much as he could while he was playing and working 12 hours a day because he works harder than anybody. So if we're going to try to introduce Alex to somebody, we want to make sure whoever that other person is, isn't going to embarrass with Alex and vice versa. As part of that, you can't talk down to people. Alex Rodriguez wouldn't sit there and talk to an investor at the highest levels of baseball. Why I think he's been such a great announcer is he breaks down highly complex stuff in very understandable terms. And it works the same in both directions. I think these athletes and entertainers are just as excited to meet these founders. There's a woman who is high level in the music industry who told me many years ago, this is the first time in the modern era where rock stars and athletes aren't the richest people out there. It's these founders. Maybe they're paper rich right now, but we've always said that athletes wanted to be rock stars or rock stars want to be athletes. Now you've got these athletes wanting to be CEOs or Kevin Hart is very focused on being a CEO, not just an on-camera talent. How we introduce those folks together is critical and has to be done with a white glove. And we focus primarily on our bigger checks, on stuff that is post-revenue, and in a spot where we can try to pour the gasoline of our network on top of it. Because if the platform's not set up and the supply chain can't get there, then, of course, we fired a shot in the woods that nobody heard. Love to hear some examples of the investments you've made and what you've done with them. I mentioned the one Golden Auctions. That's the first one that we've built an entire TV show around. We have another company that we're really excited about called Rally. Rally is the fractionalization of stuff. Again, this is close to my heart. We know collectibles are being professionalized now. The baseball card, boom, when I was doing it back in the late 80s, early 90s, they just kept printing cards if they were selling, devaluing the cards. Tops, fanatics, all the people that are in this space now are doing it in a much more professionalized way and really thinking about scarcity. 
if you're a 25-year-old kid who just thinks Giannis is the greatest thing ever, or a Mike Trout rookie car going for $2 million, you're not going to own that. Frankly, 99% of the country is not going to own that. However, if you buy it and fractionalize it, it's not technically a stock market, but it's treating it more like a stock market for stuff. Then you're allowing these passionate investors to trade off of what they think they know better than anybody. If you're a day trader, you're always looking for that little edge. And if you're sitting at the tip of culture and your edge might be knowing about which basketball player is about to do something that's going to touch them into culture in a more profound way and drive up their value on their memorabilia, their cards, that's where we're seeing the cross-section of some crypto, DraftKings, and all, all these same guys that might start to get a little bit scared about stuff that's more digital and think, all right, Rally still has real cool stuff. So we helped put it in a couple episodes of Pawn Stars. They had one of the original copies. There's about 15 of them of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm like, let's put this together. Pawn Stars is always looking for cool stuff. And they were able to find that item and then actually go to market with it and fractionalize it. It's still owned by Rally. I think it's worth two and a half, three million dollars. But here's the coolest part. Rally still has it. So we will take it to our venue. We'll take it to our events. You'll get to take pictures with it. It just raises the profile. We introduced Rally to CNBC. CNBC is not going to cover them unless they're really cool. So we'll often call a booking agent or a friend who's on air and we'll say, hey, take a look at this. If you like it, go with God. If not, if it's not worthy of CNBC or Bloomberg, then we'll come back with the next one. But they thought it was really cool and different. And then we've got them in our Netflix show as well that we're coming out with. We will always try to tell their story. And then, of course, after Pawn Stars aired, they'd never had as much user sign up as that first night. And then the re-air, same thing, their number two night ever. Another quick one is a company called Hydro that Catterton brought to us. Rowing is twice the workout as cycling, twice the muscles, half the time. But not too many people knew that, and it was considered a very Northeast sport. And so our job was to get it into culture. We introduced it to Howard Stern and his team. Howard bought one for his wife. She loved it. They started talking about it at the show. We then chase it with what's called live reads, which are the best conversion for advertising dollar to purchase because people who listen to Howard trust him. They've been in with him before on stuff he liked. We introduced it to Jennifer Aniston. She went on Ellen and gave them away for her Christmas special. So doing those kind of things is how we add a ton of value. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What have you seen as an investor 
when you're in this, both competing against and partnering with other professional investment managers, but don't have your operating experience and knowledge of how to promote and get things in the public conscious for, say, these consumer goods. What have you seen from that insider's perspective that surprised you that other people didn't know? There's founders and there's CEOs. In rare occasions, the founder can be the CEO. And obviously, when that works, I think it works most beautifully. My biggest surprise was how much disconnect there can be between the founder and the CEO when they take the capital and how much ill will can get developed really quickly between the investors and the founders. We're quite used to managing talent and having relationships to where neither side can ever hopefully push too far and go past the point of reason. We're very relationship bound. Private equity puts a time frame on the investment and the founder and puts a real noose above their neck if it's not seen as a real partnership. So we can go in often now with these private equity folks and help give them a founder's point of view from the outside and help them with the founder in ways that might just sound a little different coming from somebody else other than a traditional private equity. On the flip side, Catterton, for instance, who we really love working with, they knew the supply chain and how that hydro machine was going to be made and hit market and not run into some of the pitfalls that previous Connected Fitness had. And they also had looked at every single one. They believed that. They had all the inner workings to give us confidence that if we did the things that they were asking, that Hydro would hit the mark. We're in such a brave new world, and every business is so complicated. We really look for founders who don't think they know it all, and private equity who respect the founders. And we come in and try to respect both equally. It's always a learning lesson, and we've seen some that are really, really good at it, and others that the marriage between the investor and the founder goes up really quickly, and that's not good for anybody. You touched on the influence of TikTok and Snap in this next generation, and I'm curious, seeing that trend, what do you do with it in terms of turning it into profitable businesses? Imagine if you're a baseball fan, Derek Jeter, if you're a basketball fan, LeBron James. These two guys decided that they wanted to go direct to an audience. They started the Players' Tribune and uninterrupted. That is what TikTok and Snap are. It is the chance for a talent to go straight to an audience, to not have 25 people between them changing their message. That means these kids generally are seen by their audience as more authentic. And the minute they're not seen as authentic, they're pretty disposable. But for brands, which is what we're investing in, that ability to get to a Charlie D'Amelio or a Mr. Beast, or in our case, a Mark Rober or some other talent we work with, that can be done today, tomorrow. You don't have to go through a studio. You don't have to go through as many layers as some of the legacy talent have. That direct-to-consumer, we had already seen in so many other retail markets. I think the answer, much like we're seeing in DTC now, you still want retail. There's a move back to having inexperience and having a hybrid model. But that talent right now, we've always specialized in real people. I think brands and businesses are better served putting money behind real people versus actors because actors are just not known by their audience for their passions. If you're a Kardashian, we all probably know way too much about these people, <laughs> but at least a brand can get behind it. If you're somebody who's sober, and you're promoting a spirit, and the audience realizes that, knows that, they're just not going to go buy it. For people that are our age, it's kind of hard to understand how our kids or teenagers or 25-year-olds are so addicted to their phones, but they really believe that these people are relatable and authentic. 
And I believe that the stars of our future are on those platforms. So it's our job as TV producers to go find them there. Walk me through an example of identifying one of those talented people. What do you actually do with them to monetize that brand, that relationship with the consumer? Mark Rober is one of the more impressive guys out there, and he won't be known to a lot of the viewers, but I strongly encourage anybody to look him up because he's about 40 years old. He was a literal rocket scientist at NASA and an Apple designer. But like I was saying about Rodriguez earlier, Mark is a genius who really can tell incredibly complicated scientific information in digestible bites. And he uses humor and clever storytelling. And instead of doing 12-second TikToks, he does 20-minute YouTube clips. When Jimmy Kimmel found him, Mark had a couple hundred thousand viewers, and Jimmy started putting on, on his show as the science expert. People saw him and fell in love more. When we got to Mark, he was making a ton of money directly from brands, going straight to an audience, getting 40 or 60 million views a video. People were sticking through the whole episode. That's not hard to go sell to a television network. It was harder to sell it to Mark to do television versus just keep doing what he did. Now we've set him up with a couple series at Discovery Plus that he's in production on. Mark can be the face of pop science. He can be the face of the Discovery Channel. He cares about kids. If kids like Mr. Beast, they typically like Mark. Another younger, typical version of a TikTok influencer creator would be the Hype House. The Hype House became the first TikTok house. What does that mean? It used to be if you were moving to LA and you wanted to be an actress or an actor, you would go wait tables. And then more recently, you'd be driving Ubers. Now you're Charlie D'Amelio. You create this global audience of 100 million followers plus in Connecticut. And then you move to Hollywood and become the next wave of the Kardashians. For us, Hype House was the version where Charlie and a lot of these other kids came out of. I sat with a bunch of them right before COVID, and we were competing against everybody in town to win the deal to work with these kids. And I said, you guys remind me of the Mickey Mouse Club. I think TikTok is the new Mickey Mouse Club. And they're like, we don't know what that is. I said, (laughs) well, you know the very famous people that have come out of it. And of course, they knew all of them. We were able to not just sell their story to Netflix as the first show in many years on creators and influencers. But now we have podcasts with them. We're able to put them on other shows. We're able to bring them into businesses and brands we're investing in. I surround myself with 23-year-old young wannabe television or digital executives and listen all day to what they think is hot, what's coming. What I love about this generation is they're much more entrepreneurial, as they should be. If you have a great idea and it can go global tomorrow night. Last night, I was at an NYC NFT event with my two kids. Nyla Hayes, 13-year-old, has made $4 million on NFT art. Of course, there's going to be a billion stories that don't go that way, but how inspiring to my nine and seven-year-old to see this young African-American artist just absolutely crushing it, A, with great art, but then figuring out the digital world faster than most 13-year-olds would and had the proud parents there to videotape it all. Alongside of all of this creation, you've created this investment arm. How do you think about the importance of the investment arm relative to all the things that get you excited on the content creation and the building of those businesses? I'm generally most excited about the investment arm because I love discovering talent, discovering stuff early. Of course, you can make mailbox money in 1020X where we're working for every nickel on a TV show the old-fashioned way. 
the two work together. We call it the platform. So we've gone out and built entertainment, marketing, PR, events and experiential that all works together in a symphony on a good day to amplify the investments. The investments was the whole reason we started, but we wanted to create the platform and we've done a lot of M&A and brought in a lot of significant partners and have a lot more in the works across sports and entertainment. Timing is arguably the most important thing in investing, which getting right is always luck and science. But what we see is those companies and those brands really want somebody to tell them about storytelling. They know their story. And we're seeing founders who are getting better and better at it. I remember watching Harry's shave business. They just told a pretty good story from the very beginning. The two guys, just really simple, simple product, really smart tech founders don't come from anywhere near storytelling or Hollywood. They're Silicon Valley. So for us to be that bridge and to help those businesses and brands, a lot of these brands are hiring what they call chief content officers. A funny example I saw, but smart, was Nerf hire a chief TikTok officer. That's where we really get most excited. Eventually, we'll incubate and launch our own businesses that we'll put through our own platform. But right now, we want to really focus on doing it well for others. As you grow the number of investments you have, how do you think about effectively taking care of more and more children? When you have one project and you get one person on Jimmy Kimmel, and then how do you do it again and continue that momentum once you get it started? It's funny, you almost go through these phases. We went from having one production company to creating an engine that served four different companies. I always say we've got to treat our new children with more love than the current family because we should have a little bit more patience and understanding built up with those guys. But it's about building an organized infrastructure. I have a big saying that's framed on my wall because my assistant made it for me a few years ago, replace yourself. And in order for us to grow as big as we want to grow, We have to have that next person up. We want to find the people who are just as curious as we are. If they just want to work for a TV production company or a tried and true VC or PE arm, we're not going to be the right place. What are the leading edge trends in content? You mentioned TikTok, but as we look out what you're thinking of either investing in or you're seeing from all these creators that might be next on the front covers. Talent athletes have obviously bandwidth limitations too. So we're seeing some interesting companies that will allow talent to either have an avatar or something there the likes. We're seeing a lot of AI, some stuff where with permission, you can grant your voice to a company to go out there and create these new revenue streams for the biggest talent. We invested in a company called Invisible Universe, which is very, very fresh and new, but it wants to be the Pixar of Web3. It's going a step further than what I just said. Don't quote me on this, but I think they've created an entire world and IP around Jennifer Aniston's dog. I believe that's fact, but you get the idea. For Alexis Ohanian and Serena Williams, Alexis, founder of Reddit, one of our investing partners, and Serena, who needs no introduction, their daughter, Olympia, has a doll called Quay Quay now has an incredible following on her own. Very weird things to say to classic public investors and other folks. When you think about the creativity of people, it's endless. So that's stuff we're watching. What's really interesting is all the animation, a lot of the stuff that we would have done historically in Hollywood can be done all over the world now and can be done at a fraction of the price. So it's allowing stuff to get made that doesn't have to go through the gatekeepers of the Hollywood studio system. 
that's really the biggest shift. Hollywood now is run more by tech than it is Hollywood. This direct-to-consumer allows people to create content from anywhere. That's real, but a little bit more speculative. I don't think this idea of people watching real people on their phones and their friends is going away anytime soon. We are very focused on safety, though. We invested in a company called Zigazoo that is trying to be a younger version of TikTok, but much more educational, created by two young parents who have built and sold an ed tech company before. So we're quite excited about that. But we also just see the merging where it used to be if you were going to take a story, it would get made on film or television, but not both. That goes back to Walt Disney. I think now if you've got a great story, you can see it as a podcast. Then you can see it done as a documentary series, a scripted series, and a movie all within a short span. And that's exciting because that means you can monetize the IP in more and more ways than you have historically. And I think the other thing in media, which you're a part of, obviously, is audio. Who thought 10, 20 years ago that audio would be the hot soup du jour ever again, much less for the time it's been lately. And because the world is so busy and scattered, I think people want to go and learn and delve in and go deeper. And podcasts allow for a much deeper conversation than what would have been a seven-minute Bloomberg article. What do you see as the biggest risks in what you're doing from an investment perspective? Buying in at too frothy evaluations. We've been fortunate that we haven't made big bets on those type companies, more than one or two, that have been significantly marked up that we think have a little room for correction. Getting in at too high of a valuation, I think probably like most investors who are over the age of 30, I just always thought you had to create EBITDA or have a pathway to profitability. Most of us finally gave up that that was as hard and fast a rule as we once thought it was. And now we've been reminded that it does matter, which I think will be good for those of us who always were focused on that. All right, Brent, I can't let you go without asking you a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? With family is taking my kids to sports games because I just think it's the most fun thing in the world. I would say being on the water as somebody who grew up landlocked in San Antonio, Texas, and who now lives in a coastal town in Connecticut. Connecticut's beautiful from land, but even more so by water. So anytime I can get out on a boat is my favorite time. And what are your favorite teams? Straight Texas until baseball. Cowboys, which was a great time when I was actually covering them back at the top of my career been a rough run, but I think Dak Prescott is going to lead us somewhere, hopefully, without help from his management. (laughs) San Antonio Spurs, I will put hand to heart. I thought Greg Popovich was not qualified to be our coach. I've never been more wrong or more happy. I think the guy's the greatest professional coach of all time of any sport, but it is hard for San Antonio to now compete when guys are going to LA or New York and Miami to play because of all these other off-court activities. And then I get to baseball, Cubs fan, all because they played day games when I was a kid, which meant I got to stay up and watch it. And then finally, because I'm not trying to put my kids on planes to Texas every day, we've inherited the Rangers as the hockey team. So this is a big four, but I'm also curiously watching Premier Lacrosse League and pickleball and some of the other things that might pop up there as fun potential investments or sports to be a fan of. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? People who don't see things from the other person's point of view. That manifests itself between employee, employer, personal relationships, and everything else. To me, that's the only way to have a real conversation. 
if you're an investor and a founder, you're representing other people's money or you've put your own money in. And if you're a founder, are you understanding that's where they're coming from? And conversely, if you're an investor, you might have 15 of these and this is this person's life, soul, mission, and they may have given up everything to do this. How about on the investment or maybe media content side, pet peeves in that world? I don't like when people say something's not going to work with such clarity because nobody knows. TV, at least historically to me, was baseball. If you hit 300, you should be in the Hall of Fame. That means getting three out of 10 shows that would go through the pipeline and maybe come back either to make it on air or to actually come back for a second season. So when people speak like, we just did this research and it said this, investing TV, any stuff that's not black or white and binary, it's got to be a series of data points. That goes to another pet peeve, which is whether people think with tunnel vision or if they see the full connection of all these things. The people who can see the full picture and get it are obviously the ones I think I'll have repeat bigger business with. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I'm not just saying this because I'm married to her. My wife came into my first business never in any way, shape, or form wanting to be part of a startup. She is complimentary to me in every way. She is smart and organized and thoughtful and has empathy. And she really became the heart of the business, but also equally matched with brains and helped me build that business. She was there before Pawn Stars and then helped me through the sale. And now she's taken her talents to a completely different world. But I think our world of making stuff happen on television translates and she's running a really great real estate business with her two former female lieutenants. And I think it's great because they boss guys around all day and they deliver on time and on budget, which is unheard of as a consumer in that world. And then the other one would have to be my chief strategy officer, Ed Simpson. He came over from the UK and had seen what had happened in media over there, which happened five years before it did here in the States. And he had a business degree, but was also a showrunner like me. So he could talk to both sides of my right brain, left brain. Always made me think bigger and pushed me where my more conservative partners, who I give a ton of credit to as well, reeled it all back in and we landed in a natural place. But Ed left with me for my TV to start Wheelhouse along with our president, Rob Leah. Those two guys and I hatched this all up on a piece of paper. To go from a piece of paper where we are now has been incredibly fun and incredibly difficult through COVID, but there's still a long way to go. And I expect those guys to be there every step of the way. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? Accidentally putting footage on television that was supposed to be Bill Clinton and was a guy in a chicken costume on live television was certainly <laughs> a learning lesson in my early career. Obviously, it was not done on purpose. Almost got me fired. One that really taught me was how I started my first business. I spent the first year, and this is maybe a little note for founders or at least creators of things that they think they might want to do five or six of and roll out, whether it be a product or a TV show. I spent a full year working on one concept. By the time we delivered it, there were two other people making the same show. I found out I didn't need to deliver a fully baked pilot of 30 minutes. We could have done basically a trailer, what we call a sizzle reel, of a few minutes. So suffice it to say, when Pawn Stars came around, we just did the sizzle reel and were able to hit that mark because ironically, some people may remember, there was another show that came out right after ours called Hardcore Pawn. It didn't have the lasting power, staying power, or rate quite as well, but who knows if History Channel would have bought that one instead. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Adaptability. I was a military brat. We didn't have a bunch of money and we were moving around all the time. And for one reason or another, my father would just buy real estate at the wrong time. And he always had the entrepreneurial bug and he was probably the biggest force in 
pushing me out to be entrepreneurial. But it was that adaptability of moving around, of throwing me in so many different situations, which at the time I absolutely hated. You make a bunch of friends and then you move and then you get put into a classroom in eighth or ninth grade with braces. And you really got to rely on, in my case, bad jokes and some soccer ability back then. Just try to get along with people and be adaptable for everything I've ever done. It's at the core of. So I don't know if that was necessarily taught all the time on reason, but they certainly told me I needed to adapt and get after it. All right, Brent, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Life work balance. It's a complicated answer to give to entrepreneurial people, but people who know me since I was in my 30s and 40s see a guy who has a lot more fun than I had in my 20s in college. I worked 50, 60 hours through college and then worked seven days a week in New York because it's the toughest place, at least in the US, to make it, I think. I can't look back and complain about it, but I, and I'm sure most entrepreneurs are all about trying to find that life-work balance. Certainly COVID has thrown another wrench in it, but I think COVID has also taught me life is short every minute that I got with my kids. Brent, thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I hope to see you soon. You bet. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.